Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. We're continuing looking at Jesus' death on the cross and what it means for us and how we relate to God as a result of his sacrificial work on the cross, God the Son's sacrificial work on the cross, how we can rightly relate to God because of that. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. If you're able to this morning, would you stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together? Luke chapter 23, we've seen Jesus on the cross. He's been on the cross from, from 9 to noon, and now we enter the sixth hour, that is noon, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. You may be seated, may God encourage us through his word this morning and change our hearts as a result of what we see in his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the communion of saints, for the ability to come together, the desire to come together that you give your children. Help us to understand what your word is saying here and what we need to do and who we're to be. Give us your grace. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. few years ago, I, I shared with the church as we were going through the, the book of Ephesians that I had bestowed upon myself a title, a self-proclaimed title. And that title is The Love Pastor, or if you prefer, The, the Pastor of Love. It's a self-proclaimed title. Uh, no one else has ever called me that, but I've, I've given myself that title because of my authority and expertise in all things related to romance. Uh, so, uh, in, in light of that, I was doing some uh, internet research uh, this week on love and found some love quizzes that I thought I would share some of the, the questions with you. I shared these with my wife on Friday, and she said, are you, are you really going to do that? I said, yes, it's, a, it's my duty, it's my public service to you to help you out in your love circumstances. So here's, um, here's a couple of statements or questions from, as a love pastor that I'm giving out here. Um, so one of, the, one of the quizzes that I found was from Psychology Today. It was an online quiz, and it was a quiz entitled, The Falling Out of Love Warning Signs Quiz. So some of you this morning may be falling out of love and don't even know it and so I'm going to give you this quiz to help you uh, determine whether or not you're falling out of love. Uh, so once, and you, you say I either agree or disagree with this. Uh, one statement is, we have very few shared interests or times that we enjoy being together. If that's true, watch out. You may be falling out of love. 
another statement here is, uh, in my gut, I don't see my partner as a truly good person. If you don't think your partner is a truly good, watch out, you may be falling out of love. Um, another one is, I rarely express appreciation toward my partner. Mostly I feel irritated. So watch out. That's a warning sign. Okay, so that's, that's, those are some questions from one of the quizzes. Another quiz I found was from that uh, magazine of uh, extreme authority on all matters related to love, Cosmopolitan. And uh, here are some statements that you're supposed to answer, okay, and it uh, tells whether or not you're in love. So when people compliment your guy, and so it's written to women, um, when, I guess you could replace it with or your gal, uh, when people compliment your guy, do you change the topic or do you get warm and fuzzy? Would you feel the same way about your guy if he lost his job or hair? Now that assumes that he had a job and or hair to begin with, but what compliment would you like to receive about your relationship? Would you rather someone say you guys look good together or you are good together? Would you rather someone say you look good together or you are good together? Now, I didn't take the quiz, so I don't know what the right answer there is, and I would have answered both in my circumstances, so I don't know how that would have been scored. Um, now, obviously I'm joking. I'm, I'm being a little facetious here, but uh, these qui- as the love pastor, but these quizzes, in, in all seriousness, these quizzes do reflect something, right? They reflect a desire that we have to be loved and to love. And they reflect a yearning to know, to, to be certain in love, to, to know that the relationship that we're in is a, is a healthy relationship. We want to be assured of that. And I, I believe this is a, a God-given desire. I think there's, and even though I'm kind of poking fun at some of these quizzes, I think we have a God-given desire to love others and, and to be loved and to be assured of love. It's, it's something that, that we desire that God has placed within us. It's part of our makeup as human beings. Now, the problem is obviously twofold. One part of the problem is that we have a very unbiblical definition of what love is, right? So psychology today, according to psychology today, uh, you may be falling out of love and, and not even know it. Love is some sort of force out there that, that kind of overwhelms you one moment and, and nothing you can do. Suddenly you've fallen out of love. And that's part of the problem is that we have a very unbiblical definition of what love is. And then the second part of the problem is that we are far too easily satisfied with counterfeit loves, with things masquerading as love that aren't true biblical love. I want you to ask yourself this question as as we begin looking at this text this morning. What would it look like in your life practically if you understood God's love and were confident in it. If you understood God's love, if you understood the reality of of sacrificial love, God's sacrificial love for you, his desire to to benefit you through sacrificial love, 
if, if you understood that and you were convinced of it, what would change in your life? If you understood the love of God, what would change? And I would suggest to you this morning that if you understood rightly the love of God, you would not seek after idolatrous counterfeits. Understanding the love of God has extremely practical implications in your life. Let me just give you a couple examples. Let's say that you're in a a marriage relationship. And if you understood the love of God for you, and you understood that your ultimate satisfaction was to be found in God's love, you wouldn't look to your spouse to be a source of love. You would see your spouse as someone who's going to receive an expression of love from you. Does that make sense? If you understood God's love, you wouldn't say, well, uh, my spouse needs to be the one I receive love from. You would say, if, I, if you understood God's love rightly, that he's the source of love, you'd say, God's my source of love. He's my, where I find my satisfaction. Now, my spouse becomes someone I can express love to and, and sacrificially serve them. If you are a young person or an older person who's, who's um, thinking about romance, you would under, if you understood God's love rightly, you would understand better what a romantic relationship is supposed to look like. A, a relationship with the person is, is not designed to, to meet your own needs, but to be an opportunity for you to sacrificially serve others. If you rightly understood that your satisfaction is found in God's love, it would change a lot of you in the way that you approach education or if you're in school, or it would approach, change your approach to your, your job. You would no longer be seeking to find your, your satisfaction and your worth in your job. You would understand my satisfaction, my joy is found in God and his love for me. And here... The verses that we're looking at this morning, we find the ultimate expression of God's love. Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And here in, Roman, in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49, we see the death of Christ And we see the love of God demonstrated for us in a very profound way. And what I I want you to see this morning, if you're a believer, I want you to walk away with, with this thought. It is impossible for a believer to look at the cross and not realize that God loves them and then be changed as a result. A believer must look at the cross and say, I am loved by God. And a believer, as they come to that realization, understand the love of God, must be changed as a result of that understanding. Let's look at the story, and then as we look at the story, we're going to to look at some principles afterwards about things we, we find out about love. But let's look here at verse 44, and remember what's just taken place. Jesus has been on the cross. And as we've approached the cross, and as he has been on the cross, we have seen the cross from different perspectives. The daughters of Jerusalem 
see Jesus approaching the cross and, and they have one viewpoint and Jesus turns and gently rebukes him and says, look, you're, you're understanding this all wrong. And then he is on the cross and we see the response of the rulers to Jesus and they misunderstand the cross. We see the response of the soldiers and they don't rightly understand the cross. And we see one of the criminals see the, his view of the cross and he doesn't get it and one of the criminals does. But up to this point from nine to noon, from nine in the morning till noon, we've seen the cross from these different perspectives and we've seen humanity's abuse of Christ. And now as we approach the noon hour and as we see Jesus on the cross from noon to three, we see the cross from the divine perspective. We're going to see Jesus suffer not at the hands of mere human beings, but we're going to see him suffering at the hand of the Father. Look at verse 44. It was about the sixth hour, and there's, there's darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. What in the world is going on during this time? couple things I want you to keep in mind, okay, as we look at this very important verse and a half. First of all, remember this. Remember that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 tells us this. The wages of sin is death. Whenever you go to your place of employment and you you work for an hour or you work for eight hours or you work for 12 hours or however long you work and there's this, this understanding that because you've done work, there's going to be wages received. And what Scripture tells us is that, that sin exacts a wage. There's a, a compensation for sin. And the, the wages of sin, what we receive because of our sin, is, is death. Scripture describes the death that we receive as, as not just a physical death that entered the world through Adam and Eve's sin, but there's a, a spiritual death as well. And because we have sinned against an infinite God, a God who is infinitely holy, our, our punishment is, is inf- deserves an infinite punishment as well. Our sin deserves an infinite punishment. Our punishment that we receive because of sin is death, it's hell, it's eternal separation from the Father. Matthew 8 describes that describes hell. We see several descriptions of hell in, in, in Scripture as, as a place of darkness. So the wages of sin is death. That's one thing to keep in mind as we look at this verse. And, and another thing to keep in mind as we, as we think about what's taking place here is not only, not only is the wages of sin death, but keep in mind as you look at what's taking place here, Keep in mind, number two, that that Christ is perfectly holy. You say, okay, Christ is perfectly holy. No, no, no. Think about it. There is a moment when time began. And from that moment that time began, from from then to the incarnation, Christ was was perfectly holy. But then there was also this, I don't know what you call it, this time before time, there's this Whenever time began, before that, if you can even use the word before to describe that, in that moment or, or that, in that existence from eternity past, Christ was also holy in that 
whatever that is, that time, that, 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 that existence. He was completely and perfectly holy then as well. So during that entire time, non-time, Jesus Christ has been not just really, really good, but he has been completely and utterly holy. There has never been a, a thought that entered his mind in eternity past or, or before the incarnation, in any thought that was, was less than perfect, that was less than absolute, complete perfection. And then he beco- becomes a human being. He's, he's fully God and fully man. And he lives a life. And in the life that he lives, he is completely and total perfection. No word ever escapes his mouth that is a sinful word. No thought ever enters his mind that is less than complete perfection and holiness. So as we see Christ on the cross here at noon, understand this. This is a man who is fully man, fully God, and completely and utterly perfect. Third thing to notice here as we think about this verse, verse and a half, it's at this moment, I believe, based upon what Scripture tells us, that he who is utterly perfect who experientially knew no sin, this moment he becomes sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 says that, we sang it earlier, right? He became sin who knew no sin. Jesus Christ had, had never had an, an impure thought or anything that he had done had ever been less than holy. And, and now at this moment, Scripture tells us, and I don't understand this, but, but, but Scripture tells us that he becomes sin. It's at this time that I believe that, 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 that God begins to, to pour upon Christ and, and Christ begins to fill, be filled with all the, the sins that have ever, we've ever committed. It's incredibly profane. You and I have a an emotional response whenever we, and I believe, again, this is God-given, an emotional response to things that are of value being treated as if they, they don't have value. There's an emotional response we sometimes have. This last week, I read this story about this guy who was creating a sculpture out of old comic books, and he found this recycle bin. There were a bunch of old comic books in it, and so he kind of tore them up, and he created this, this sculpture, and then some people were coming and viewing, it, viewing the sculpture, and one of them was a uh, comic book dealer, a guy who dealt in antique comic books and valuable comic books, and he, he looked at it and he realized that this guy had taken comic books that were very valuable and used them and, and destroyed them to create this sculpture. He, he said that the comic books this guy had used to create the sculpture were worth, worth over $20,000. And he had no idea of their value, and so he he treated them this way. Now, when I hear that story, there's kind of like this, oh, there's kind of a shot to the gut. Something profane has taken place. And I'm sure you can think of examples as well. Things that are valued, that are are treated in an irreverent way. All those things that you can think of, all the, the profanity, all the things that are profane, things that are a value that are treated as though they have no value, all those things are, are shadows of this ultimate act of 
profanity. All the, the bad words you can think of that were, were things that are coming out of our mouths that should be righteousness or, or profanity. All those, those deviations from righteousness are shadows of this ultimate act that is ultimately profane. He who has lived a, a completely perfect existence from eternity past now becomes sin. It's like this, this cup full of this, this, this perfectly beautiful cup being, being filled with all this garbage and this filth. And the believer, whenever we contemplate the cross, remember last week I said that there's a, a danger in looking at the cross and only thinking about Christ's physical sufferings. For the believer, whenever you and I look at the cross, we should, yes, be disturbed by the physical abuse that Jesus endures, but there's also a sense of revulsion as we consider the profanity that takes place as God in his perfection becomes sin. There's a revulsion that we should have within our souls as we think about sin because we know that the end result of our sin is that Christ bears the penalty for it on the cross. Christ becomes sin. And another thing to think about as we look at this verse is we understand that Christ now bears wrath. He bears God's wrath. He's, he's punished. He's abandoned. He completely fulfills all that must be fulfilled to deal with sin once and for all. So the wages of sin is, is death, and Christ is utterly perfect, and Christ becomes sin. And now as he becomes sin, during this, this time period from noon to three, the fullness of God's wrath is poured out on his son as his son completely and totally fulfills everything that is necessary to receive God's forgiveness and reconciliation. He completely pays the penalty for sin during this time period because he is the perfect sacrifice. Now, again, look at this idea of darkness, okay? When we see darkness in Scripture, often we see that it's it's a sign of God's accompanying wrath. Isaiah chapter 13 talks about the day of the Lord. It's cruel. It's his wrath. It's fierce anger. And it says in verse 10 of Isaiah 13, the stars of heaven and the constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil. You come to the book of Joel and you can just jot down Joel 2.2, Joel 2.10, Joel Really, Joel chapter 2, you can just kind of jot that down and look at that later. Amos chapter 5, in Amos chapter 5, verse 18, we see Amos say, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness, it's not light. In other words, some people are saying, Hey, we're really excited about the day of the Lord. Bring on the day of the Lord. And, and Amos says, Hold on, hold on. The day of the Lord is a time of judgment. And this judgment is described with darkness. Is not, verse 20 of Amos 5, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. Amos chapter 8, verse 9, shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink. That's verse 8. And then verse 9, And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon 
and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Here, Christ becomes sin and bears the wrath of God for us. Do you remember last week we talked about the word atonement? We kind of give a, give a biblical definition for that theological term you'll hear sometimes. It's a, it's a biblical word you see in Scripture. Remember, here, here's a definition of atonement that one person has given. The atonement is the work of God in Christ by Christ's obedience and death by which God canceled the debt of our sin, appeased his own holy wrath against us, and provided a perfect righteousness in his sinless son and secured for his people all the benefits of salvation. Now, he says he did this, he did this, um, the, the definition at the very beginning says, it's the work of God in Christ by his obedience and death. Obedience and death. I want you to catch that. The death of Jesus Christ here from noon to three would have been of no value, of zero value to us if he was not sinless. And yet his sinless life would have been of no benefit to us unless he died for us. So Jesus Christ is this perfect sacrifice who dies for us, and by his life and death, the wrath of God is completely satisfied. Now what, we, what do we see next? Go back to Luke chapter 23. What do we see next? Well, next we see that relationship with God is now possible in a very powerful way. It says that as, as all this takes place, as the wrath of God is being poured out, um, and I don't think this is necessarily in chronological order. Luke's dealing kind of a little bit thematically with the events here in these, these three hours. And it says in verse 45, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. In other words, relationship with God is now possible. Remember the last time we were inside the temple? Inside the holy place? Do you remember that in the Gospel of Luke? When was the last time we were here? It's been a while, right? It was at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke with who? With Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest, and a priest, once in his life, if he's fortunate, could enter into the holy place and offer the incense. And Zechariah does that. And as Zechariah, remember we talked about, he, he goes in the holy place, and he see, we talked about all the things in this room, and we said one of the things that he sees is the curtain, the veil. This veil was some 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. It was this, this massive veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And only the high priest could enter into the holy place and then only once a year. Zechariah is able to enter into the holy place, but he's never going to enter into the most holy place. There's this, this sacredness to this place, this, this inability to approach God and that, that closeness. In fact, uh, keep your finger there in Luke 23 and turn over the book of Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. It's uh, kind of in the middle of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9 and as you look at Hebrews chapter 9, we, we see something very interesting about what Jesus did. And the writer of Hebrews des describes more what's taking place here. It says, verse 2 of Hebrews 9, For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which there was the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the, ho the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. He talks about what was there. And 
then he comes down to verse 12. It says that Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, permanent redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God? In other words, if goats can do this, the blood of goats could do this for a time as a picture of Christ's death, how much more can Christ, by his own blood, secure for us a relationship with God? Go down to verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed once for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus Christ, by the shedding of his perfect blood, enters not into a holy place made with hands, but in the very presence of the Father. And to the Father, Jesus can, can say, so to speak, sins dealt with. There's now no longer anything separating humanity from you. Your, your perfect, our, our perfect righteousness, the requirements for perfect righteousness to be in relationship with you have been fulfilled in me with my blood. And so that the temple curtain tearing, catch this, it's a picture of God's ability to be in relationship with you. There is no longer a, a thing separating us from the most holy place. We have the ability through Jesus Christ to enter into the very presence of God the Father. Reconciliation, relationship with God is now possible. I want to touch on a couple more things then, and then I want to get back to that idea and, and see what we learn about love. Jesus, next we see in verse 46, he entrusts himself to God. And by the way, kind of an interesting thought here. So think about God's love for us. There are relationships in my life that have been tainted by my sin and their sin. There are relationships in my life that I wish were different. There have been times where through my, uh, my sinful actions, a relationship has been damaged. And, and I've, I've desired to do things to fix that relationship, but I've been unable to do so. Maybe you've experienced this as well. But you know, I, I send an email, and I, I think I don't, you know, don't want to bother them with a phone call, and I, I know things are kind of tense, so I'm going to send an email. And as you send the email, you think, you know, there's some sort of epistle of peace, and then they, they get it, and it's like I've just 
poured flames on the situation, or you call and things get mixed up in the phone call, or you meet in person and things just kind of spiral out of control. You're like, I don't understand what's taking place here. I want us to be in a relationship, and we're not. God, as sovereign God, sees a breach in relationship And as sovereign God, he does everything that is necessary to bring about reconciliation. You and I don't pursue relationship with God. God pursues relationship with us. So Jesus now, verse 46 here of Luke 23, he uh, commits his spirit to the Father. He calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's a complete trust that he has in his Father, and he dies. He breathes his last. From the other gospel accounts, uh, we know that during this time he would also say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, as God pours out his wrath and turns away from the Son for the first time in in Christ's existence, which again has been from eternity past, the relationship with the Father has, has been disrupted. We also know from the gospel of John that at this point, before he dies, Jesus cries out, it's finished. Tetelestai is the Greek word. It's from the, the word teleo. It means uh, to, to, be, to be paid in full. But what it means is that everything, catch this, everything that is necessary for salvation has now been accomplished. That is a very important point. Some people, we've been talking, as we've been talking through this, have been asking me, okay, so Daniel, as Jesus dies, you know, what happens to him? Does, does he go down to hell? Does he, you know, I've kind of, there's kind of this church tradition that says that he goes to hell and leads like a rescue mission or something or maybe suffers there some more. No, no, no. Catch this. It's done. We may talk more about this this week, but, but understand, as Jesus Christ dies on the cross, the fullness of God's wrath has been satisfied and there's nothing else that he or we need to do in order to bring about reconciliation with God in terms of works. There's no other work that can be done, no other thing that can be employed in order to satisfy God. We'll talk more about that next week. He commits himself to the Father. He transfers immediately into the presence of God the Father, shortly to be joined by the criminal who had placed his faith in Christ as well. And then we see several responses, and we'll just touch on these very quickly. There's, there's several responses, and, and they're very similar. And what I want you to see in these responses is that reconciliation is now possible. People who earlier were mocking Jesus and were in danger of facing God's wrath, we, we don't see complete reconciliation yet, but I think Luke includes these responses to let us know that there's hope. The centurion, remember the centurion has just been mocking Jesus, and he, it says that he sees all that's taken place. In other words, he sees how Jesus has responded. He's seen what Jesus did with this one criminal. He's seen the darkness. He understands that there's something profound that has taken place, and he says, certainly this man was innocent. Matthew and Mark tell us that he also says, uh, truly this was the Son of God. This is a very special story uh, to me personally, this response of the centurion. Many years ago, several years ago anyway, whenever uh, Hannah and I were coming back from some event at Bethany Baptist Church, it was late at night, it was just the two of us in the car, and it was around Easter, and I knew we weren't going to make it home 
in time for us to read the Bible together at home, and so we were praying together and talking about Scripture in the car, kind of our nightly devotional time. And I said, you know, what do you want to talk about? And she said, let's talk about Jesus' death because it's around Easter. And I said, yeah, let's, let's talk about this. She was maybe four years old. And then she asked me this, this question. She said, Daddy, was the centurion, did the centurion go to heaven? And I said, well, Hannah, that's a very astute theological question. Allow me to give you my treatise on why. I, be- no. I said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I said, he certainly says a good thing, doesn't he? She says, yeah. I said, well, Hannah, how would we know whether or not the centurion went to heaven? What does a person have to do to get to go to heaven? She said, well, believe in Jesus. I said, that's exactly right. All you have to do is trust in Jesus. So what did the centurion, if the centurion went to heaven, what did he do? She said, believed in Jesus. And through that conversation that evening, that's, that's the moment that she would tell you that she made a profession of faith in, in Jesus Christ. And I think that's what Luke is trying to do here. He's trying to show us that there's this reconciliation that Jesus has made possible. Now, people are in line to receive it. The people, the crowds that have assembled, begin to, to beat their breast. Earlier they've been mocking, and now... You know, they, they were there for a spectacle, and now their conscience has been painfully, painfully awoken. Jesus' followers are, are still looking, wondering how to process what's, process what's taken place, and we'll again look at that in the coming weeks. But right now, here's some things that I want you to know about love because of the cross. Three things that I want you to know about love from the cross. As we think about, remember we, we said, I said, a believer cannot look at the cross without knowing God loves them and being changed as a result. And so as we think about love on the cross, here are some things that I want you to know. Number one, I want you to know God loves you. I'm speaking specifically this morning to believers. Those of you who have received forgiveness from God for the forgiveness of your sins by believing in Jesus, an offer that's open to all of us, we need to understand, those of us who are believers, God loves you. He said, well, Daniel, how exactly does God's love for me, how exactly is God's love for me revealed on the cross? Well, let me just give you two thoughts as we think about God loves you. The cross demonstrates that God loves you because it's at the cross that there's a culmination of God's plan to redeem you that began in eternity past. Let me say that again. One way that you know that God loves you from the cross is that it is a culmination of a plan to redeem you that began in eternity past. You remember we went through the book of Ephesians many years ago, and in the book of Ephesians we, we see why God should be blessed. Paul begins as he writes this epistle to the people in Ephesus. He says, blessed be the God and Father, this is Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, in 
love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And what I think Paul is saying here is he's saying, okay, we live in this world of cause and effect. There was a moment when time began. And whenever time began, the foundation of the world, we understand that there was this, this time, then event A happened, then event A caused event B, and then event B caused event C, and C caused D. And Paul says, okay, before all of that, before there was an event A to cause event B, B go one step Removed from that, before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, God demonstrated love for you and that he chose you. The word there is, is predestined. It means to select beforehand. If you are a believer, understand this. At the cross, a plan that was eternity in making came to completion or, or came to, to, to culmination, if you will. It's not completed yet. We still have eternity future. Glorification. But the cross demonstrates God's special love for you and that it's, it's a culmination of a plan that God has had to redeem you from, from before we can even conceive of time. Uh, Jesus in the Gospel of, of John would say, all that the Father has given me will come to me. This is John chapter 6, verse 37. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up at the last day. In the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, we, we encounter this, this beautiful passage about the security of the believer. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, Beginning, let's start in verse 35. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Then he says, verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, how can that be true? Well, we can, it can be true because of what we see earlier in Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, again, that's before time began, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's what I want you to see. The cross represents the culmination of God's divine plan to redeem you. Planning is an outgrowth of love. I was thinking about that concept this, this week, that, that planning reveals love. And last night, uh, Whitney and I are, are laying in bed, and I said, hey, hey sweetheart, um, you know we've been talking about getting dates on the calendar and stuff? She says, yeah, I says, we, need to, we need to, right now, let's get out our calendars and let's, let's plan some dates. And she goes, you know, she's kind of half, okay. And so we, we planned a couple dates. She goes, why are you doing this? I said, well, I'm preaching tomorrow about love being an outgrowth. I've got to get something on the calendar here. You know? Planning reveals love and, and care. And, and, and a person who plans something loves someone. 
No, the opposite isn't always true. But what we see here is God demonstrates his love and that the cross is a culmination of a plan to redeem you, the beginning of eternity past. We also see the cross demonstrates God loves you because Christ laid down his life for you in a special way. God loves you, we see, because it's a culmin- the cross is a culmination of God's plan. We also see that the cross demonstrates God's love because it shows God's love for you as a believer in a special way. There's a special love that God has for his sheep, for the, the elect, that's shown at the cross. Now, this is a hard concept, but let me just read to you some scripture and see if you see what I'm saying here, what, what God's word is saying. John chapter 10, verse 11 Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's a special love that Jesus has for his sheep that's demonstrated at the cross. John 10, 15, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for who? For the sheep. That's just a few verses later. And I have other sheep that are out of this fold. I must, I must Bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. John 79, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. There is a special, a special love, a unique love that Christ has for his sheep that's demonstrated at the cross. God loves you. Secondly, here's the second thing we find out about love from the cross. You can love God. You can love God. The first statement is a theological statement in some way. God loves you. This is a relational statement. Uh, based upon this theology that God loves us, we know First John 4 tells us that, that we now have the ability to, to love him. We love him because he, he first loved us. We find our satisfaction, our joy in God's love. And now, because he loves us, we have the ability to to love him back. There's so many things we could talk about with this. But but just just think about this relationally. I've often wondered about my own marriage relationship. I've wondered, do I have a wonderful marriage because I'm such a, a fantastic husband? Maybe some of you have not wondered that about me. But, or is it just because Whitney is such an easy person to love? She's so sacrificial in her love for me that it's very easy for me to sacrificially love her. Now, as believers, what do we see? We understand that God has sacrificially loved us and, and cared for us in a way that, that we can't even fully fathom and will continue to contemplate it into eternity future. And what we understand is that as we respond to God and we love him, we love him because he first loved us, and then that flows into our other relationships as well. I can love you because God loves me. I can love God because God loves me. I can love, period, because God loves me. How can you not love a God like a God who would send his son to die for you on the cross. Here's the third thing we know about love from the cross. You can pursue God. Love of God allows us to lovingly pursue God. 
we don't pursue God out of a legalistic obligation, out of, okay, uh, Jesus died for me on the cross, therefore I must obey him. I wouldn't want to do this on my own, but fine, I owe you one, let's do this Christian life thing. No, no, no. God loves me. God has designed me to be a creature who who wants to be loved and be secure in love. And as I look to the cross, I see God's love and I'm excited by God's love and I can be in relationship with God. And now, because God loves me, I can pursue him. I can pursue the affection of my love with, with fervor and passion. The cross demonstrates God's love and it teaches me that I can pursue God by loving him. Revelation chapter 5 says they sang a new song, Worthy are you, they're, they're, they're singing to the Lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And by your blood, what did you do? By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. By God's divine decree, the Son dies on the cross in our place and allows us to be redeemed and worship him. There are so many idolatrous counterfeits to love, aren't there? There are so many things that kind of look like love, but aren't. And as I suggested to you at the beginning, the problem is that we have a very unbiblical definition of love, And therefore, we're satisfied with things that aren't love. God tells us, no, no, what love is, love is sacrificial. Love is giving of oneself for the benefit of another person. And and here is love and that Christ died for us. And if you are not a believer this morning, the beautiful thing is that you can experience God's love today as you, you understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place and you can believe in him and receive eternal life today and understand God's love and be motivated by it and respond to it. And for those of us who are believers... For those of us who are believers, brothers and sisters, we can't look at this story. We can't look at this story and walk away saying, I doubt God really loves me. For those of us us who are believers, we must look at this story and say, God loves me and be changed as a result. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us, a love we can't fully understand or comprehend. Give us the grace to respond rightly to it. In Jesus' name, amen.